Hey, you're listening to the audio version of Well Read with Justin Chapman. If you'd like to watch the video version, please go to youtube.com backslash C backslash Justin Chapman 15 or just search for Well Read with Justin Chapman in the YouTube search bar. Learn more at justindouglaschapman.com. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Justin Chapman, and this is the second episode of my new show, Well Read with Justin Chapman. I'm excited to announce that Pasadena Media, the local public access corporation, will be airing the show a couple times a week on the Arroyo Channel, which is channel 32 on Spectrum and Charter and 99 on UVerse, as well as on PasadenaMedia.org. So check for showtimes at that website or on my Twitter page at Justin D. Chapman. There's so much to get to, so let's get to it. Here's where we're at. 2.8 million infected, 196,000 dead worldwide. In the U.S. alone, at least 26 million people are out of work. 890,000 ill or recovered from the virus, and more than 51,000 Americans dead, which is getting close to the number of Americans who were killed in Vietnam, which was 58,220. Sadly, we'll probably reach that number by the time I publish this episode. We now know that the COVID-19 disease was spreading in major U.S. cities in January and February earlier than previously thought, and that there were 28,000 hidden cases in those cities rather than the 23 confirmed cases in the entire U.S. by March 1st. Infectious disease experts believe that between 5 and 20 times more people have been exposed to the coronavirus than have tested positive. A preliminary finding of a joint study by USC and the county found that the number of coronavirus infections in Los Angeles County may be 55 times higher than what's been officially reported. An estimated roughly 4% of adults have antibodies to the virus in their blood, or as many as 442,000 people. Let's take a look at Pasadena's numbers. As of April 24th, the city of Pasadena has 299 cases of COVID-19, and 29 deaths out of a city of about 142,000 people. We need to ramp up testing and tracing. That's the only way out of this. That's always been the only way. And now we know community transmission was occurring in the Bay Area long before the federal government did anything about it. Had they flooded the country with tests like South Korea did, we wouldn't be in this mess. South Korea and the United States discovered the first COVID-19 patient in each country on the same day in January. Today, South Korea has 240 deaths, and the U.S. has over 51,000. Last week, I talked about loneliness and other side effects of this pandemic. According to a January 2020 survey of 10,000 Americans, ages 18 and over, conducted by Cigna, 61% of adults, three in five, reported that they are lonely. That number is up seven percentage points from 2018. That survey was taken in January, before the pandemic hit hard. Imagine where we'll be after this. I recently read an interesting article in a local community newspaper about learned helplessness. Essentially, when humans are exposed to stimuli they can't control, they develop lower self-esteem, passivity, anxiety, and depression. We're being bombarded by negative news, so the only lever of control we have is our attitude. I usually consider myself a pessimist but I am moved by this idea of learned optimism. We are not victims of our circumstances. 
We choose how we feel. We are not weather vanes. We can choose happiness at any time, no matter how horrible our circumstances may seem. Easier said than done, of course. But those who can view bad circumstances as temporary have an easier time weathering the storm. I'll quote the article here. It is not exposure to negative news alone that results in hopelessness, but the lens with which we view the input. Challenge the negative thoughts in your head. Your attitude is not simply a state, but a strategy for how you get through this time. End quote. News you can use from Jay Wagner of Pasadena. Now, back to that horrible news I started with. People are protesting the stay-at-home orders because what? Death is worth the risk? One of the biggest concerns is the spread of misinformation and conspiracy theories regarding this virus. People in Trump world and QAnon and the anti-vaxxer movement believe Bill Gates is trying to force vaccines on people in order to implant tracking devices in their blood. They believe Gates has patented the coronavirus. A shocking number of others believe that the coronavirus is somehow linked to the rollout of 5G, the fifth generation of wireless communications technologies supporting cellular data networks, which will essentially connect more things and run much faster. This technology is going to revolutionize our lives. But some people are so convinced that 5G is harmful to human health that it's the cause of COVID-19 and other ridiculous claims. There needs to be a class taught in high school or perhaps taught to baby boomers about how not to believe everything you read on the internet, how to tell a legitimate source from an illegitimate one. Thankfully, Trump and Fox News hosts have stopped promoting hydroxychloroquine as a treatment for COVID-19. For the past two months, they were talking about this powerful drug as if it was a miracle cure that was the answer to all our problems with no concrete evidence that that was the case. Well, a new government funded study says it has a higher death rate and shows no benefit for patients with COVID-19. Why couldn't they wait until we have the science? Why do they keep setting themselves up to look stupid and opportunistic? Now he's doubling down and urging his medical experts on live television to investigate whether sunlight or injecting disinfectant into our bloodstreams can kill the virus. He seems to think his role is to brainstorm miracle cures from the White House podium. When he faced backlash and statements from Lysol and others telling people not to inject bleach, he claimed his comments were sarcastic. No, they weren't. But I'm almost more scared if Trump loses in November, then if he wins. What is he going to do if he loses? Now at least he's paring back his press conferences and may stop appearing daily. As much as I morbidly enjoyed watching his daily train wrecks, they are dangerous. I just hope this doesn't mean his poll numbers go back up. Meanwhile, Joe Biden is starting the general election nearly $187 million behind Trump. From March 15th to April 15th, Trump had three times more cable news mentions than Biden, seven times more social media interactions, 15 times more social media followers, six times more web traffic, and seven times more Google searches. This is not good. Biden needs to do something bold, like pick Michelle Obama as his running mate, or a true progressive to unite the Democratic Party, like yesterday. If anyone was unclear on the impact voting has on your personal life, now you know. On that note, I think it's time we checked in with our senior influencer correspondent, 
Brad the Influencer. Bradford? Hey, everybody. It's Brad the Influencer. I'm still locked up in my bathroom. No one's coming in or out. Um, look, everybody might be kind of freaking out about how will I take care of my skin at this point? Like, uh, I can't go out and go get my masks and stuff. Well, guess what? I have a solution for you, and it comes with an added bonus. So, first of all, what I'm going to do is spritz some rose water on my face. Get that all around, get it all around. And then, let me put that down, hold on. I'm gonna put a little bit of just some just some facial um, lotion here. Put that on, really coat it. And then here's the kicker, okay? So I'm gonna just place toilet paper on my face. And hopefully it stays on here. And look, not only is your skin going to be radiant and shining, but you're also going to be protected from coronavirus. So, I hope this influenced you. Love you guys. Let's patch in our guest, Ryan Bell. Ryan is Program Director at the Secular Student Alliance, Humanist Chaplain at USC, and host of the podcast, Life After God. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure to be with you. So how are you doing in these trying times? How has this pandemic uh, impacted you personally? Yeah, so other than just working from home, um, I, I'm doing well. You know, our, our income is okay and so far so good. Great. Um, and so you used to be a pastor and then became an atheist. So tell us about that process and your, your Year Without God project. Yeah, that's how I uh, initially met you. Uh, you uh, did an interview with me for... Um, the Pasadena Weekly. Um, so yeah, I was I was raised in a Christian family, like like so many Americans, and I went to seminary uh, after college, became a pastor. I was only about 23 when I started my career as a as a pastor. I was in the Philadelphia suburbs at the time, and ended up in 2005 moving to Hollywood, California, where I was the pastor of the the Hollywood Adventist Church. And by the time I left, yeah, it was about 19 19 plus years. Uh, all together. I was a pastor in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and uh, it's a pretty conservative, you know, one would even say fundamentalist denomination. Um, so it was it was difficult for me as I developed as a person um, through my own education and reading and just personal development. I became much more inclusive and accepting of a wide diversity of um, of uh, individuals, you know, that weren't traditionally accepted in the in the Adventist Church. Um, so, you know, to this day, the Adventist Church is not um, does not ordain women to the to ministry. Uh, they don't accept uh, LGBT people as sort of, you know, equal before God. Um, and so, it's you know, I was sort of pushing against all of those uh, political norms. Uh, within the church for years and finally just came to the point where I think we came to a mutual agreement that it was best if I move on. Um, in 2014, I started a blog called A Year Without God. And in that year, I decided that I would really explore the one, I guess, philosophical position that I had not explored, the stone I hadn't turned over. I thought, well, let me figure out what atheists believe, what they do. Do they gather like religious people do? Do they have um, other types of uh, shared identities or values, uh, core values? 
Um, so I spent that year writing and exploring, almost like participant observer research about atheism and wrote my blog and did some videos and, and things like that. And by the end of the year, I decided I didn't believe in God anymore, um, but that I was substantially the same person. And I sort of sort of accepted this label, I suppose, of um, atheist and, and also um, secular humanist, which is probably the way, I mean, if someone asked me, if are you an atheist, I would definitely say yes. Um, if they asked me just to identify my worldview, I would say humanist or secular humanist. Um, because to right. me, that's a positive identification of what mm -hmm. I believe. Right. Yeah. To talk about what you do um, as the, uh, the, the humanist chaplain at USC. Yeah. So, I mean, it's really simple. I mean, I'm essentially um, a pastor in, of sorts to the non-religious students uh, on campus and we have a student-run club called Secular Student Fellowship. And they are, you know, they, they run their own club. They have Monday night meetings. And we, um, we do a Sunday evening dinner every other Sunday where we welcome new students and just have informal conversations, sometimes some uh, formal discussion of a topic. Um, and, and so it's, you know probably 40 to 45% of USC students are non-religious, but they wouldn't necessarily identify with a particular like humanist worldview. They just are, you know, apathetic about religion or just don't subscribe to anything. And right. so we're reaching out, trying to, you know, broaden our reach there, but a lot of that student led and I'm just available. I have office hours about twice a week and we put on events that are designed to include the non-religious viewpoint on a number of topics and, um, yeah, it's really a really cool experience. You recently ran for Pasadena City Council. Uh, I'm really interested to get your take on that whole process. What was it like? Was it harder or easier than you expected? What surprised you about it? Yeah, you know, I think, and I'm a pretty politically involved person. I suppose I wouldn't run for a position like that if I wasn't, but it, it still surprised me how challenging it is. Um, I think... I was a little surprised that in a city as, you know, relatively small as Pasadena, that there was as much money involved yeah. as there was, there is, um, you know, candidates for mayor raising hundreds of thousands of dollars and candidates for council seats raising, you know, 50, 60, $70,000. I mean, it's, it's a lot of money. Yeah. I think the other thing that surprised me and I shouldn't have, honestly, I'm a little embarrassed to admit that it surprised me that, that um, the relationships or, or the endorsements or the support that candidates receive is largely based on their, um, the favors or the you know, relationships that they've had in the past where people feel sort of obligated to support because of something that that person did for them. Or, I mean, that is, relation, that is politics. I mean, it's relationships. And I'm a newcomer in this field um, I kind of thought that maybe my viewpoints would have more, uh, carry more weight than they did. Um, there were like, there are some, you know, reasonably progressive organizations in the city that um, offer endorsements and they all gave their endorsement to the incumbent. And I guess that surprised me a little bit, kind of hurt a little bit that they weren't interested in a, a more progressive candidate when there was one available. But, right. but I also, I do, I do admit that there are, you know, there are relationships and those relationships are important. 
Um, and I think if candidates want to be taken seriously, they have to put in the time and the work and it, it takes years to develop that, that kind of, um, those kind of relationships. Um, and, and so I, I think for a person like myself, who's, you know, my income is below the median income of the city. And, um, you know, I don't have tens of thousands of dollars to loan my campaign. Um, it's, it's not simple. I mean, so I had no mailers and I had no lawn signs. Um, and the people that I'm appealing to, to vote for me are also people who don't have tens of thousands of dollars. So it's tricky. I mean, without the endorsement of progressive organizations that do have some money, it's really difficult for an insurgent sort of grassroots candidate to, to gain um, the upper hand. I, I will say that both Tamerlan and Steve were very, have been very gracious to me. And I, I feel like I have a good relationship with both of them going forward. And, um, and I, I talk regularly with Steve now about issues that I care about that I think the council needs to, to do. Like, he, I mean, I don't think he agrees with me on some things, which is totally expected and fine. But I do feel like I have um, the ability to have input in ways that I maybe didn't have before. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, But you remain in the game. You're still a strong advocate for tenants' rights. You wrote another great article in Colorado Boulevard recently. Talk about the problems facing tenants during this pandemic and, and what needs to be done. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's, I mean, I think this pandemic really exposes how fragile we all are. I mean, I think that what's, what's like a, a hidden, like a, like an open secret is that the homeless and I would say middle-class renters, like people that are reasonably middle-class, but can't afford to buy a home, the, 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 the line between that middle-class renter and someone who's homeless is relatively small. So people are really waking up to the reality that they are a paycheck or two away from insolvency and homelessness, potentially. Some of us have family members and friends that we could fall back on, but in a pandemic, those people are probably struggling as well. And unless you own your home outright, you are housing insecure in this country. So we're still struggling for um, more protections. We, in Pasadena, we have an eviction moratorium that essentially means that um, the courts will not process eviction uh, claims or eviction lawsuits uh, during the pandemic, and that tenants will have six months from the end of the emergency declaration in the city to repay back rent. But if we take you know, average rents, and just for round numbers, let's say it's more than this, but let's say the average rent is $2,000, and a person can't pay their rent for even three months, that's $6,000 now that they're behind. And they have to make up $6,000 in six months. That's $1,000 a month on top of their normal expenses. Most people don't have that. Mm -hmm. They're not going to be able to do that. And so instead of a wave of evictions during the pandemic, which would be the worst possible scenario, we're going to have potentially a wave of evic evictions six months after the pandemic. What needs to happen and what I've been strongly advocating for is a bottom-up approach. So if tenants can't pay their rent, then that puts pressure on landlords. And I get that. And we get a lot of pushback like, hey, landlords are just trying to pay their bills too. We totally get it. So they can't pay their mortgage either potentially. And so the banks are not getting those payments either. And so the banks are saying, hey, 
we can't survive either, so they appeal to the federal government. And I think that is the sequence that should take place, unlike 2008, 2009, where the banks got bailed out and then went ahead and foreclosed on homeowners left and right. We had a mass foreclosure epidemic. And I'm afraid that if these, these bailouts continue to happen from the top down, that that assistance never reaches the bottom. Um, so, Ryan, before we uh, wrap up, tell me um, what you're reading right now. Um, a couple things. Right now I'm reading Albert Camus' The Plague, um, and I'm actually facilitating a discussion uh, online through my job, but through some other networks, um, humanist networks. So on April 30th, if anybody wants to join, they'd be happy to reach out. I'd be happy to provide the, the link. Um, we're going to have a Zoom hangout and discuss uh, Albert Camus' The Plague. This is my second time reading it, and it's just um, so spot on, you know, like 70, 80 years old, uh, almost 80 years old novel, and um, you'd think he was writing about what we were going through right now. Where, where can people find out more about what you do, about your podcast, your other work? Sure, yeah. So my podcast is at, uh, you can find out about that at lifeaftergod.org. And uh, we haven't had an episode recently, but I just recorded one today that'll be up soon. And, um, and then my, my day job is at secularstudents.org. We support uh, non-religious students on campuses across the country. It's based here in Pasadena, um, but it's a national nonprofit. And um, yeah, and then I, I do a few other things. My chaplaincy is at my own personal website, um, ryanjbell.info. Awesome. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for all you do. Keep up the good work. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you all for tuning into my new show. I hope you're all reading a book right now. I have a reading list that's a million miles long. I'll never be able to finish all the books I want to read in my lifetime. In fact, it truly depresses me. If you need recommendations for good reads, I suggest you check out Ronan Farrow's new book, Catch and Kill, about his reporting that helped bring down Harvey Weinstein and the resistance from NBC executives he faced over reporting that story, as well as his experience dodging the Israeli spy firm Black Hue that Weinstein hired to follow him. Really fascinating stuff. I also recommend Robert Caro's new book, Working, for all those writers out there. Caro is a master at his craft, and he delves into his thinking behind researching stories and people, the art of interviewing, and the discipline needed to put in the work and do the writing. I'd also like to make a music recommendation. My brother's band, Snake the Deck, just came out with their first album called What the Heck. They are such interesting songwriters and genre benders, so I highly recommend you check them out. You can find the album on Spotify or at snakethedeck.bandcamp.com. Stay tuned for new episodes of Well Read every week or two. I'm Justin Chapman, signing off. Learn more about my work at justindouglaschapman.com. And remember, a life well read is a life well spent. So go read a book. Till next time.